The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran From Plain Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at plaincrazydownunder.com. For great coverage of the Kiwi warbird, restoration and aviation scene, we like to listen to Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. The following recording was made live at a Wings Over New Zealand forum meet at Ardmore Airport, in March 2016. The guest is Rick Martini. Coming up in a a few minutes we've got uh, Rick Martini who's uh, going to give us a a talk on the lost airmen of Buchenwald. Uh, his father was one of the airmen. Did any of you see the uh, documentary a couple of years ago that was on Prime TV about the lost airmen? Yeah, a few of you may have seen it. It's uh, an amazing story. There were RAF and US pilots and, and aircrew who were shot down over Europe they're taken prisoner and rather than go to a proper prisoner of war camp quite a number of them were for some reason sent to the notorious Buchenwald camp. So I've spent the last five years working on this. I really didn't get heavily into the research project until quite a while after my father died and then uh, And then among my mom's effects, I found a box of papers that uh, got me interested in in following up on some stories, because my dad would never want to talk about what went on in the war and what happened to him. It was a very uh, slow process getting the bits and pieces. So over time, I've been working uh, with um, 
archivists at the National Archives in uh, Washington, D.C., and the archives in London, the Kew Archives, and the Bundesarchive in uh, Berlin, and the French Archives uh, in Paris. So, uh, the, the Kiwi connection is uh, squadron leader Philip Lamison, who was born in September of 1918 in Napier. And he grew up in Napier and then went off to uh, Palmerston North and got a diploma in sheep farming. And then in 1940, he enlisted in, in the New Zealand Air Forces and got trained as a pilot and in 42, he was sent over to England and was with uh, the 218th Squadron at Flying Stirlings. And he completed a tour as pilot and was then assigned as a, a flight instructor for bomber pilots. And he did that for uh, six months or so and he really this, he's a, this was a big guy, very rugged, very action-oriented, and I don't think he liked being off, off the line. So he went back, uh, joined the 15, went to the 15 squadron flying Lancasters. And he got a uh, DFC for bringing a damaged plane back without injuries to the crew and keeping everybody on task. Uh, he got a bar to his DSC. He got mentioned in a couple of dispatches. Uh, and then on his 45th mission, uh, the, the plane night mission got spotted by a German fighter, probably a Ju-88, uh, and the fighter locked onto them and he couldn't shake it. So he did what Lamison, what his personality told him to do, which was to turn around and try to shoot it down and had the crew uh, firing the guns at it and uh, it didn't work very well and he got shot down and uh, of the seven men on the crew, uh, one of them was killed in action. Uh, the four of them were captured as soon as they hit the ground and uh, Lamison and his uh, navigator, who was British, uh, evaded capture. And they then spent uh, the next seven weeks being sheltered in the town of Chevreuse, which is on the uh, outskirts of Paris, uh, not just, just barely past the city. Uh, now, the other character in the story is my dad, uh, Frederick C. Martini, and he was born in Brooklyn in October of 1918, just one month later. Uh, grew up in Brooklyn and Coney Island. Uh, left school a year before graduating from high school. Uh, it was the Depression. His mother had died in childbirth. His father was not dealing well with the whole situation. So he left, got a job, uh, found out he had an aptitude for mechanical things, 
and ended up uh, running machines and doing maintenance in a, in a bakery. And it got to be 1941, and summer of 41, before the U.S. joined the war, he enlisted in the Army and went through training in the Army. But in 42, the 8th Air Force was being set up and manned, and he volunteered for air service. And he went to gunnery school. And then he went to mechanics school and came to Europe as a assistant flight engineer and gunner, waste gunner, on B-17s. And he was assigned to the 385th Bomber Group, which is in, uh, was in Great Ashfield. And uh, he was with the 551st Squadron. Uh, there are 10 crew on B-17s. You guys may know all this already. But 10 crew, 4 officers, uh, 6 enlisted, all uh, sergeants, uh, all trained in gunnery to one degree or another. Uh, my father was a left wing gunner. Uh, they did uh, 10 missions together. Uh, at, on their 10th mission, they were on their third airplane. The first uh, crashed on their arrival delivering the plane to the European theater. Uh, the second one was on their first combat mission as an air crew uh, where they were had two engines on fire and they ditched in the English Channel. And then here was their third plane. They were now calling them crash wagons. This was crash wagon three. And they were on a mission to uh, bomb the marshalling yards uh, of Montdidier. Uh, Phil Lamison was shot down on the 8th of June. Uh, my father was shot down on the 12th of June. It was a, a daylight run. Uh, again, two, two engines out, plane uh, blown full of holes by flak. They were at 24,000 feet. Uh, the crew bailed out. Uh, one parachute didn't open. Navigator was killed. Uh, six of them were captured on landing. But my father and his friend Sam, who were the waste gunners, who had talked about what they'd do if they had to bail out, they decided that, well, what they didn't want to do was jump out of the plane and open the chute because there'd be too much time to be spotted by the Germans. So they were going to wait. Well, my father ended up waiting unintentionally because he was hit by flak in the head and the left leg and uh, was a little bit woozy from loss of blood plus the altitude. He was going out of the, he got out of the plane at about 21,000 feet. Uh, and he passed out. And uh, Sam opened his chute at 5,000 feet. My father came to, saw the ground, opened his chute, drifted a little bit and impacted and sprained his ankle. Uh, but he did wake up before hitting the ground, which is definitely a positive thing. Uh, so he landed uh, in an area where a French farmer was tending his crops, uh, had a, a mule-drawn water cart, 
and there was a young boy helping him and they stripped my father uh, he was knocked out on landing they stripped him he woke up they got him on his feet and boosted him up and dumped him in the water cart and then got him to the young boy's parents farm and he spent five days there and then was moved to the town of Huckville uh, which is about 75 kilometers from Paris and my father spent uh, two months there and there were two other airmen being sheltered uh, just in the one place he was at which was the home of the resistance leader for that portion of the of the district uh, and they they stayed there uh, they, Max Roland was the chief of the resistance there and Max would say you don't want to go anywhere just stay here the Allies are gonna break through anytime now and you just have to stay out of sight till they get here well that made sense but weeks went by and weeks went by and six weeks after they were sheltered in the schoolhouse allies had not really gotten out of that one swatch of the of the normandy coast and a resistance member named jean jacques started showing up saying hey i've been getting guys out of here for the resistance for months we've got this comet line you come with me to Paris and I can get you to Spain and then you can rejoin your friends I've done this I have 14 guys I gotten out of here and so they asked Max is, is this is this true and Max said yeah he's taken 14 guys from this district and and uh, they all he said they all made it so uh, they said they agreed now the same fellow or someone using the same name was talking to Phil Lamison and Ken Chapman where they were hiding so on the 28th of July Lamison and Chapman went off happily to Paris and on the 5th of August my father and the two guys with him went off happily to Paris and where they went was to Gestapo headquarters and they were dragged out of the car and clubbed and taken up to the fifth floor and uh, well nowadays they would say aggressively interrogated um, and then sent to friends prison and they were put in uh, either solitary or in small cluster small groups two or three guys in Frayne's prison uh, pulled out for interrogations put back in uh, lousy living conditions you know room service was only once a day and they would bring you a small chunk of bread and some weevily soup uh, on the 15th of August 
it was clear to the Germans that Paris was under threat and it was on the 15th that the last train left Paris and that train took with it uh, the uh, guys in the Vichy collaborationist government who knew they didn't want to still be around when the French free French forces arrived and the German officers and their gear and 2100 French civilians who the Germans had arrested for one reason or another or just because they happened to find them around uh, and they wanted them for uh, slave labor in the German industrial uh, system and they put them all on boxcars and the it turned out there were at that time 169 airmen being held at trains uh, that were put on these boxcars and there were uh, uh, it was a mixture of Americans, Britons, two Kiwis, uh, Canadians and Australians and they were loaded in the boxcar 90 to a boxcar which was designed for uh, eight horses or uh, 40 men. They were given a, a, a 20 liter pail of water and that was their drinking supply and an empty 20 liter pail and that was their toilet and they were kept in those boxcars from uh, when they left Paris uh, to uh, into Germany and ultimately to Buchenwald concentration camp. One airman, a Canadian, uh, managed to escape on the first night uh, in retaliation. Everybody in that boxcar was stripped and uh, put back in and told grenades would be thrown in if anyone else tried to escape. Uh, the three boxcars that contained the airmen were at the end of the train ahead of five boxcars of women. Uh, when they got to Frankfurt, uh, they were let out briefly uh, and the women were, uh, those, those cars were decoupled and they went to Ravensbrück. Uh, everybody else here, up to that time the airmen are thinking, oh, maybe they're going to send us to a POW camp. Uh, because they had their dog tags. They were dressed in civvies, but they had their dog tags. Uh, but no, they went on to Buchenwald concentration camp. And when they arrived there, uh, Lamison protested, was uh, beaten for his trouble. Uh, the men were uh, stripped, shaved, uh, doused with disinfectant, given uh, rags of the striped uniforms that I'm sure you've seen, uh, no shoes, and dumped into Little Camp, which is uh, a quarantine area uh, within Buchenwald, uh, which held perhaps 4,000 at its capacity. Uh, it was full at the time, so the airmen had to stay in the open in an area known as the rock pile 
uh, sleeping on the floor, on the ground, on the rocks with uh, bare feet, no jackets, uh, one, one scrap of cloth that could be a blanket for every three to five guys, and they didn't get those initially. Uh, their first day, evening, was terrible. Uh, the food they got was just a chunk of hard bread and uh, a bowl, of, uh, a tub of watery soup. There was no organization. Uh, some people didn't get to eat, some people did. Uh, some other prisoners came in and raided and took some of the food, took their whatever they had for cups, uh, stole some other stuff. It was, it was a real mess. And the following morning, uh, Phil Lamison got the airmen together and said, look, we're soldiers, we can't behave like the other prisoners here, which would, they would literally kill one another for a chance to get at some food. Uh, we're a military group, we're gonna be organized like a military group. And he set them up in squads and set the squads by nationality or Air Force group with each squad having the, the skills needed to fly a plane if they were ever to be able to break out and get to an airfield because they, uh, they had heard from other prisoners uh, that there was a Luftwaffe airfield seven kilometers away. So right away, he had the idea that if we have a way to, if we can only break out of the little camp and then break out of the big camp, we might be able to get to the airfield. Uh, four days later, the US Air Force bombed two arms factories that were attached to Buchenwald and, and uh, blew them to smithereens. Uh, very limited casualties among the prisoners and none of the bombs fell in the barracks of the prisoners, but the SS barracks were hit, the Commandant's house was hit, and these two factories were leveled. So the airmen were called upon by the Commandant to go in to fight the fires in these structures and collect whatever equipment could be salvaged out of them. And this is barefoot. Uh, and it so happened that while they did that, they could pocket pieces of rifles and pistols and ammunition. Now, because they were sleeping on the ground, they couldn't, they didn't really have a place to hide it. So they uh, threw some of the airmen who could speak uh, Polish or German, uh, they were French, they were able to connect to the underground in the rest of the camp and pass them these bits. Over time they accumulated enough for uh, 200 weapons. Uh, also in the first week they met Forrest Yo Thomas who was an SOE agent who had parachuted in uh, he had, there were 37 special operations agents 
in Buchenwald at the time. So that would give them a combined military force of over 200. And things looked very optimistic. But they didn't stay that way. Uh, over the next couple of months, uh, the SOE agents were executed in batches. And the airmen, after little over two weeks sleeping in the open, in the rain, in the fall, at, in, outside of, of, of Weimar, uh, they had pneumonia, uh, uh, dis everybody had dysentery, uh, there was pleurisy, scabies, uh, my father had a burst appendix, uh, just the physical toll on these guys over two months lost 30 to 40 percent of their body weight. Uh, they basically were debilitated to the point where they were no longer effective uh, as a military force. But Lamison and Yo Thomas separately got messages out uh, to the Luftwaffe at the airfield telling them that there were airmen in Buchenwald and that they were in trouble. And a Luftwaffe ace, a Hans Trautluft, came to inspect the bomb damage, supposedly, but made it a point of going by Little Camp and one of the airmen who spoke German hailed him and they had an extended exchange about who they were and Troutloff promised to uh, see what could be done. He couldn't do anything directly. His fiance was part Jewish, but he did make a contact in the Dulag Luft, which is where interrogations of downed airmen were performed by the Luftwaffe and an official from there, senior officer, came to Buchenwald, had the commandant call these guys together, uh, talked to them, and then arranged for a train to come and evacuate them. And they were evacuated four days before Himmler's uh, execution order. Uh, so they, they, all of the, the last of the SOE agents had been killed and their turn was next. Now, there's an interesting aside if anybody's interested about how there were six of the SOE agents who didn't die and just how they managed that was pretty amazing in itself. Anyway, they were evacuated to Stalag Luft III in Zagon, Poland. Uh, within a, m well, the first month, both my father and uh, squadron leader Lamison were in the hospital. Uh, when Lamison got out of the hospital, he had a written report, several pages long, uh, which he managed to get passed to the Swiss delegation representative when he came through to inspect the POW camp. So by late November, uh, the British and American governments not only knew that these guys had been in Buchenwald and what the conditions were like in Buchenwald and about the SOE agents getting executed, but he'd also recorded the names of the Channel Island 
citizens, and there were six of them, who were being held as prisoners in Buchenwald and who he felt were going to be killed. And in February, uh, the, the British and American governments for, uh, formally protested through the Swiss to the Germans, and they were actually able to save the lives of those Channel Islanders. They were transferred out of that camp. So, uh, so Lamison was really the guy who held these airmen together and got them through this ordeal and then afterward did what he could to let people know about it and protect those still at Buchenwald. So what happened then? Well they both they were at uh, Stalaglyf 3 that was evacuated on a forced march in a blizzard in minus 30 degree temperatures on the 29th of January 1945. They were forced marched for three days and then put on trains. Uh, Lamison ended up in uh, Stalag Luft 3A and my father ended up in Stalag 7 which is down by Munich. And from those two camps, they were then liberated as the war ended. Phil Amison got back here uh, right as uh, the war ended, uh, as, of, as VJ Day. Uh, he received no awards, no commendations, no notice at all of what had gone on. In 1989, he received a $13,000 compensation check for having been in a concentration camp. Uh, but his story was basically unknown. Uh, then there started to be a series of documentaries about the Buchenwald Airmen, and he was interviewed for those, and the most detailed was the uh, Lost Airmen of Buchenwald that Mike Dorsey did that came out a year and a half or two years ago. Uh, what about my dad? Well, my dad got home, uh, went into uh, the hospital, uh, got out, was discharged, went to the Veterans Administration and applied for assistance because he had no sensation in his feet, he had peripheral neuropathy, he had acute post-traumatic stress, uh, dropped to the ground at loud noises, couldn't work, couldn't stand. And uh, they told him that uh, he was lying, that uh, there had been no POWs in Buchenwald, and they cited uh, reports of the U.S. Congressional delegation uh, that uh, published after the war ended and came out in the publication was in August and the uh, British parliamentary delegation published at about the same time both of them explicitly stated that there had been no prisoners of war held in concentration camps. Uh, so my father received a 10% psychiatric disability, uh, 
one of the uh, rationales given was for claiming to have been in a concentration camp. Uh, they would not cover uh, reparative surgery for his burst appendix, nor uh, he lost almost all of his teeth. Uh, and his records, which I inherited out of this box, say things like, vet alleges prisoner of war. The best line, and I'm sorry you couldn't read it on the, on the paper, but the best line is I have a, a, a thing from the Veterans Administration saying, your head injury and flak wounds were not, uh, uh, did not occur, nor were they aggravated in your military service. <laughs> So he, uh, he tried until his death with the members of the uh, KLB club, which is Concentration Lager Buchenwald. Uh, the airmen formed this their first week at Buchenwald, promising to get back together. They could never get back together because none of the information, not their uh, Buchenwald file cards, uh, not their debriefings by the OSS or British uh, Secret Services. Uh, nothing uh, was released and declassified until the mid-1980s. So until the mid-1980s, none of these men had any way to contact any of the others. And they all went through the same experience of being told they were lying, and they all just shut up about it. They accepted that there was nothing they could do. Uh, there have been several attempts in the U.S. to get congressional action to correct the congressional record. Uh, somewhere in the Senate Judiciary Committee, it gets killed every time, and the last time was 1999. Now there's only a handful of these guys still alive. I don't think it's likely uh, that another effort's going to be made. Uh, Phil Lamison died in 2012. Uh, I think he was, he felt, I think it was nice that he got some recognition before then. Uh, he still had no great love for the, the Germans, <laughs> but uh, I, as uh, neither did my dad. But uh, so that's that's the, the core of the story. If anybody has any questions, uh, I'll be happy to. Have you, have you talked with any other force marks people? So I know of one that I was astounded of, Ian Smith. Uh huh. His father, 75 Squadron Sterling, shot down, and uh, I, I've been in search of all of the World War II 75 Squadron veterans for a long time, and uh, I saw a death notice for a Smith 75 Squadron, and I went down to this funeral, mm -hmm. and I saw a chap talking up the front, and then Ian Smith stood up, and it was his dad, and he uh. talked about his dad being on the force mount. And even the bones in a full life and never knew about it. And that's what we're finding. Many mm -hmm. World War II veterans have not joined the RSA, they've not joined our associations. And the first time we know of them is their damn death notices in the plant. But uh, later on, uh, I went to the match function. Mm -hmm. And uh, Ian Scott came up to me and asked me, uh, my dad never spoke to what happened. Do they open up to me? Because I mm -hmm. around a visit. And I said, well, yes, they. 
Yeah, uh, uh, three was the okay was the one in Poland, uh, but of course there were others. There was one uh, that set period of winter when the Russians were advancing. Any of the camps that were in danger of being taken over, they just hustled the guys out of there and moved them on. It's not clear as to whether they wanted to retain them as hostages or if they were going to use them as forced labor, which they did with my dad. You know, officers, they couldn't do that too, but enlisted guys, they could. So my dad was in uh, labor stuff in Munich out repairing bomb damage. Um, but there were, uh, the Stalingrad three had uh, uh, south, north, east, center and west camps and each camp was intended to be for a particular mil allied military service so my father was in south camp which is where most of the Americans were uh, the British were in primarily in the north camp and that's where the great escape had taken place and in fact that was the first time that the Buchenwald airmen were told not to talk about it because it, all the inmates at Stalaglyph III were so angry over the execution of the SKPs that they were afraid if they heard what had happened to these guys uh, in Buchenwald that there would have been some kind of an, some kind of an explosion. Yes. Those that were killed or died on the, on the way, have you found any evidence that those guys have actually got known graves? No. And in fact, there's no, there, there are, uh, there, it's, there are people who were on the march who say nobody died. There are people from the march who say 2,000 died. Uh, and there's no, you know, there's very little record. I've just brought over Europe photographing Sydney High School and I'm just wondering from your experience whether you found that or not because uh, other than that, all RAF Commonwealth, mm -hmm. uh, those with no known grave, now mentioned I have running in London, which we do some time. So my thinking is as those that left for camps and were killed. Mm -hmm. They are not being found, noted that they died in a particular area or covered there in somewhere else. Their names must be now on the main front. They'll be the only one. Yeah. Do you agree with that? In theory, yes. Whether it happened in practice, who knows? But running means said no Yeah, this, and the Stalaglyph uh, 3 organization has no, no track on that either. The Yes. Did the Germans' records survive from the Stalaglyph 3? Stalaglyph 3, I have uh, very little, if anything. Uh, Buchenwald, uh, there are captured, captive, yeah, captured German records. The file cards of the airmen, uh, and they had a 
five or six cards per airman. Those were recovered and those are available through the International Tracing Service and there are copies at the Holocaust Museums in various countries. Uh, the other paperwork, there's a lot of it at the Buchenwald Museum. They have no staff, they have no archivists, and they have no index. So just trying to find out who's been there and when is very difficult. And also, uh, the airmen were subjected to medical experiments. Um, uh, my dad and many of the others received uh, injections in the heart area. Uh, you know, kind of a mess where you line up with a veterinary syringe and you just keep poking until the needle breaks. Uh, there's no indication of what that what that was. And and what I the loop I didn't close was why was all that so secret for so many years? Some of the stuff in England uh, isn't going to be declassified uh, until 2020. Uh, it it was all tied into the fact that Werner von Braun and the other German scientists were coming to uh, Buchenwald and that's where the slave labor came from uh, to build the V2 rockets at the Middleworks. And when the Middleworks underground factory and the Dora concentration camp were discovered, there was a security blanket put over everything to do with it. And uh, not even at the, at the Buchenwald war crimes trial, the prosecutor was unable to name a single POW who'd been at Buchenwald or a single death. Two of the airmen died there. Uh, but even the prosecutor in the war crimes trials didn't have that information because it was buried. Uh, so it's kind of the, the result of demented security issues, uh, they had to completely rewrite the histories of, these, of the scientists they brought to the U.S. and to the U.K. to get around the regulations that, oh, you couldn't be a Nazi and you couldn't be an SS guy. Uh, von Braun was an SS major. Uh, so... And without him, the Apollo, victory Apollo would never have happened. I wouldn't go that far. I mean, the, the Russians did real well and they didn't have him. Uh, well, what they, what they had was they had the gear. They had the stuff they got out of the Middleworks. I mean, you can't tell me that a bunch of really talented engineers couldn't take a rocket motor and reverse engineer it and figure out how to make it, what the principles were. As long as they took out of the bits that the resistance and the others manufactured the <laughs> work. Yeah. Uh, okay. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.